everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Reshit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Vayishlach opens with a fear-inducing encounter between Esav and Yaakov. Yaakov prepares for the worst, and in the midst of his preparations, experiences an unusual encounter which leaves him physically injured, but perhaps psychologically more whole, as we suggest in episode 84 with guest Rabbi Shmuel Klitzner. Yaakov and Esav meet and avoid dangerous conflict, and somewhat disappointingly part ways again. At the end of chapter 33, Yaakov gives Esav the impression that he will follow him back to Seir, but no such journey is ever undertaken. We get the sense that Yaakov is relieved to have established positive ties with Esav and wishes to leave things at that. The episode that follows the rape of Dina will be the focus of today's conversation. God calls Yaakov back to Beit El, giving him purpose of travel after Yaakov is seized with fear that the Shechamites might harm him to avenge his son's behavior. When Yaakov fulfills God's commandment to travel and build an altar, his name is changed for a second time to Israel. Rachel tragically dies birthing Binyamin, completing the family tree in the saddest of ways. And finally, the Parsha lists the descendants of Esav and the kings and chiefs of Edom, all associated as Esav descendants. This is the way the book of Breshit parts with Esav, as it did earlier with Ishmael. Esav will appear in chapter 35 to bury Yitzchak, but we hear nothing about him other than his establishment of the great kingdom of Edom. To unpack the difficult story of Dina's rape and how it fits into the broader fabric of Yaakov's family story, I have invited Rachel Sharansky Danziger back to our podcast. She first joined us for episode 63 on Parshat Chukat to discuss Moshe's leadership style. Rachel blogs about the intersections between life, parenting, history, and text for the Times of Israel, 929, Kfeller, and other online venues. This year, Rachel is teaching two courses at Matan's Jerusalem branch, an English course on the Book of Shemot and a Hebrew course on Shoftim. She also teaches virtually at Yeshivat Maharat in New York City and at Mayan Torah from the Sources in Boston. Rachel, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Yosefa. It's wonderful to be back. I really want to jump into the perspectives you want to share on the story of Dina. I think that it's a very, very difficult story, but I think looking at it through the prism of Yaakov's family story, as it involves so deeply the brothers and Yaakov himself somewhat in the background, it really asks us to study the story this way. So jump in wherever it feels right for you. I want to start by saying that it's a story that's horrifying. Yes, it's a, it's a horrifying, shocking terrifying story where violence begets violence. We watch Dina going out and being raped by the prince of the land. We then watch the same prince desiring a proper marriage with her, and we watch him and his father come with an offer for general intermingling with Jacob's family. We watch Jacob being silent in the face of it and his sons taking command and taking initiative. 
and embarking on a complicated deception of the people of the city, where they basically tell them, circumcise yourself and everything you ask of us, this intermingling, intermarrying, will take place, except when the men agree and circumcise themselves, instead they carry out a horrifying massacre of all the men of the city. The story ends with this confrontation between Jacob, who is angry, livid, really, at his sons, and speaks to them in very strong terms. He says to them in Bereshit Lamedalet Pasuk Lamed, Acharten oti lev isheni beyoshev ha'aretz. You have brought trouble on me, making me odious among the inhabitants of the land. And then he expresses his fear that the inhabitants of the land will kill him and his home, and we'll come back to that. And the brothers respond with, should our sister be treated like a whore? Very harsh um, statement and really the end of the story. On the face of it, there's nothing redeeming here. It's bad from beginning to end. It's terrifying to consider what happened to Dina. It's terrifying to consider what happened to the men of Shechem also. It's painful to leave a story on this note where the father and the sons don't see eye to eye and are very vocal and adamant about it. At the same time, there is something amazing that happens there under the surface of this horror. And what happens here is the revolution and family relationships in the book of Bereshit on two axes, so to speak, on the axis between parents and children and on the axis between brothers. This is the first time in the Abrahamic family, in the Abrahamic tradition, that we see a younger generation stepping up and taking leadership while their parents are still alive. And that does not lead, unlike in previous events, to the rupture in the family, to the family falling apart. We, you know, when Yitzhak didn't really step into center stage and start taking action until Abraham died, until Abraham stepped down. When Jacob seized control of his life by cheating his father and stealing the blessings, that led to many years estrangement and to the family effectively falling into parts, falling apart. The fact that now we have the possibility of a family working together with generations with very different perspectives, with disagreements between them, still moving forward as one and seeing themselves as a family, this is not just a revolution in family relationships. This is really, this means that we have a foundation here for this family becoming more. We can start seeing the seeds of a national story emerging when one generation taking action doesn't necessitate basically jettisoning the previous generation and moving on. So one thought I would add to that is that I wonder how much of the brothers behaving in the way they did is because they perceived their father as weak, meaning there's a feeling I have that whenever we talk about Yitzhak's passivity, that it's because his, his father was such an active, strong figure. And in the case here, I think it would be a huge overestimate to give a characteristic title to Yaakov. I think there's, there, he's a multi-layered, he's a multi-layered figure, but certainly in this story and in a number of stories, we see him being very passive. The Radak, by the way, says that specifically on the story, uh, that when he hears about it and doesn't respond earlier, when he hears about the, the rape of Dina, there's something in the passivity and in his, his lack of response, whether again, it's out of fear or for whatever reason, he's not responding, that I would hope would rouse the, the brothers or those that will protect to do something. But I wonder how much of it is because we see here a development in family, which either way there's a development in family that happens, and how much of it is because Yaakov 
doesn't necessarily do what he needed to do in this story, that his role wasn't played out fully. So, as you said, the Radak has a strong position on this, and different commentators comment on it with very different bands or very different uh, judgment cast upon his actions. I want to suggest a slightly different perspective on it, to look at it from less from the perspective of right and wrong and more in an attempt to understand where he's coming from. One of the things that strikes me about the story is the gap, the huge gap between how explicit and violent the actions are and how little we are told about the motivations of the character. Mm-hmm. As you point out, Jacob is silent. It's not just that he's silent. He's, we all don't even know what he feels. Mm-hmm. When David finds himself in a similar position many books and many years ahead, when he hears that his son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar, he also is passive and it leads to all kinds of problems down the line. But at least we know he's angry. Yeah, he's emotionally reactive in a way that Yaakov is emotionally reactive. Yaakov is totally silent here, Mm -hmm. which is difficult to comprehend, difficult to understand, difficult to relate to. But consider that this is a man who has just led his family through a very difficult immigration process. You know, just chapters earlier, we watched them leaving behind the world they built for themselves in Aram Naharaim, the world where his wives were born. All other than himself, everybody else in his family is a new immigrant. He is doing relocation, as we call it today, but everybody else is a new immigrant. He is now trying to reestablish himself in the country of, our youth, of his youth, presumably a country that changed and is different than how he remembers it from his perspective as a child when he left it, or as a young man when he left it. And he needs to find his way in it, to, to kind of build a world for himself and his family there. I think in light of this, when we think about the preceding events, his hesitation here, his fear of responding, might be more understandable. At the same time, it also makes sense that his children are the one responding because we know from from what we know of immigration today that oftentimes in immigrant families, the younger generation, the children, get absorbed much faster. They understand the language faster, they get an in into the culture faster, they get what the newest fads and gags are and everything. And we often see it here in Israel, which is a society of kibbutz galuyot, of uh, the gathering of the exiles. We see that children of Olim tell their parents how to handle various difficulties. And when I look at the sons of Jacob stepping up, I'm not just seeing sons stepping up into the vacuum that their father's passivity created, I'm also seeing young immigrants saying, move aside, Father, we know how to handle these locals. We get it. Mm. We know what we're doing. Wow, that's a really, that's a really insightful reading. I think also that, so I think we'll get to it, but the, the background of the family dynamic itself is also definitely somewhat at, at play here. But I think that, that noting them as immigrants is something that is really insightful that we often, we often look over in these narratives. It also, I think, opens a new perspective on Dina's actions. I mean, Dina is notably silent throughout. We don't know anything about her experience. And I will say, by the way, that in Tanakh, mm-hmm. women who get raped are silent, meaning there's, there's a correlation there between, you know, we have a number of rape narratives throughout, the, throughout Tanakh, and the women tend to be voiceless. I'm not totally sure how to read that. There's a lot of very negative readings of it. I'm not sure to identify with most of them, but, uh, but most of the time they don't get a voice. But I think in this particular story, Dina in many ways feels like an object of the story. And when I say object, I don't just mean in, in the, obviously in the sexual way, you feel very much that the story is being told to us 
for what it reflects about the relationship between Yaakov and his sons and less about what it reflects about Dina. Meaning she, she's the background of the story almost, but the story itself is, is, about, is about Shimon and Levi and, and sort of the way that Yaakov interacts with his children. I agree. And I think if you compare it to modern day instances of, for example, family honor killings, yeah. it's a similar dynamic. It's a dynamic that was very prevalent in yeah. the ancient world. The fact that a girl who goes out into a city of strangers gets raped is not shocking. And it's not unusual, sadly, in, th- in those times, and sadly also not in our times so much. I think you wanted to go in the direction of why Dina would look to explore her surroundings. Yeah. So, and here I, I really want to go into a deeper understanding of what the immigration process was, because it wasn't just an immigration. It wasn't just, oh, let's move from one culture to another and be somewhere new. When they move, they're also leaving behind a familial environment. Until now, Jacob and his wives and his children all lived surrounded by Lavan and his family. In many ways, Dina grew up surrounded by family members. More than that, it seems that most of the people surrounding her were her brothers. She had the mothers, she had the matriarchs and the the Bilha and Zilpa as well, the concubines, but it's not clear how much female companionship she had. Suddenly she is placed near this place that suddenly has girls her age. A new experience, an exciting new experience for her. And as an immigrant, she is not well-versed in what is safe and what isn't safe. I mean, I'm going to compare it to something totally different. Forgive me for the you know, mixing of worlds here, but I spent three years in Boston. And in the first few weeks in Boston, I was scared. I was scared, not because I really thought someone would attack me, but I felt uncomfortable. Every time I walked out of the house, I was worried that I'm dressed wrong, that if I smile at strangers, they'll read it wrong, that somehow I'm not sending the messages I think I'm sending because the cultural context that receives them is so different. Hmm. With time, I got more comfortable. Dina didn't get that chance. She stepped out. She went into a place that wasn't safe for her, lured by the new, and not well-versed enough in what to look out for. This is obviously a much more insightful, <laughs> I wouldn't say only more insightful, but a kinder reading than a lot of the readings that are offered for behavior. There's a lot of uh, blaming the victim that goes on in a lot of midrashic traditions that I think have always been hard for women to read. Uh, for, you know, Yetzanit, but Yetzanit, by reading that Leah, who went out of her tent, and that this was a trait from Leah, and all those readings, which today, again, we would say is to, to blame mm-hmm. the victim, I think this is a really, really insightful way to look at it and be like, she was just curious, you know, she was getting to know a new world and she didn't know her boundaries yet. Like she didn't know the appropriate limits for somebody living in this totally different space. I think that's yeah. a really powerful way to look at it. I think when I read those midrashim that judge Dina, it's hard for me. I mean, I, I, I'm not usually of the opinion that men and women necessarily have different insights into things. You know, you can be a man who sees the female perspective and mm-hmm. a woman who sees the male perspective. But I really feel like when I read those Midrashim, I really feel like those are people who are secure in their culture and in their place in the world. And I'm hesitant to say it, but I feel like we need a little bit more empathy and go beyond that. Mm-hmm. One Midrash that does do it, by the way, I think, is, um, is an odd Midrash that I am grateful uh, to Rebanit Michal Tikochinsky for bringing in her relatively new book about the Parsha. Mm-hmm. She quotes a Midrash from uh, Avodah Rabbeinu but 
the second nuskha, not the common one that you can easily find on Safari. And it basically suggests that This is a quote from Kohelet that says that he who breaks a boundary, a, boundary, a snake will bite them. And at first it sounds as if he's judging Dina again, like all those other Midrashim, right? He says, he who breaks a boundary will be bitten by a snake. It's Dina. Okay, Dina broke a boundary by going out. But no, that's not what it says. What he says is that when his father, when her father and brothers were sitting in the Beit Midrash, she went to see the daughters of the land and she caused herself to be at a risk and the snake came and bit her. And the snake is Shechem ben Chamo. So, it still lays some responsibility on her. It still, it follows the pshat of the text that says that the harm befell her after she went out. If she hadn't gone out of bounds, nothing would have happened. But it does leave us with this sense that the truly responsible parties, not for the rape, but for her going out like this, were her father and brothers who were focused on something else oh, at the time. Mm-hmm. They were sitting, they were busy, they weren't watching over her. Mm. And if we're talking about the relocation experience and the immigrant experience, I think that might be related also because when Jacob immigrates, I keep coming back to it because I think it's so important. It's not just an immigration and it's not just moving from a familial environment to an environment with strangers and new laws that his family, his children, his daughter at any rate is not aware of. It's also closing the chapter of his life where he lived afraid. I'll explain. From the moment Jacob emerged from the womb holding his brother's heel, and from the moment he was named after it, Yaakov, he always lived in competition, in relation to Esav. When they were young, it was about who will be the firstborn, who will get the right of the firstborn, who will get the blessings, who will be more loved by which parent. The moment he stole the blessings, even though on the face of it they separated, Jacob doomed himself to years and years of living in fear of what will happen on that distant day when he comes home and meets his brother again. His brother, whom, who has just grievance against him and is a murderous man. Not only that, the new environment he found himself in forced him to constantly contend with Lavan and his machination. And it's pretty clear that from the way that Yaakov had to run away in order to get away from Lavan, that he had legitimate fears there too. And now finally, he closed both of these chapters of fear. He separated from Lavan successfully with God's intervention. He, as you said, established good enough relations with Esav and separated ways. I can imagine that at this moment, Yaakov feels invincible. <laughs> Yaakov is not afraid for the first time in his life of the people in his family who compete with him. I think it takes time to transition from this euphoria to learning to be afraid from the strangers surrounding you, from people you have no familial relationship with, from people you don't know how to handle yet. So in this Midrash, when we hear about him sitting in the Beit Midrash, what I'm imagining is this group of people who feel like they finally reached the Nachala, finally reached the end. We know later um, in Parashat Vayeshev, Rashi immediately quotes the Midrash that Vayeshev Yaakov, right? That it's... It's a warning sign. Yeah, this is the one I wanted to say. I wanted to say, no, no, go for it. It's a warning sign. It's when we hear Vayeshev, he settled down. Uh Uh-oh, we know something is going to unsettle him. That was his problem. Then the whole story of Yosef, that's what the Midrash says, right? It's also also the desire of somebody who's been running for so long 
to just have things become, to have life. You know, I should know, I, I think about this, Midrash, all the time. I remember the day, I remember where I was in my apartment. I remember it was a, a very, very full, in a, in a negative kind of way, period of my life. And I had two kids, and I was still getting used to that dynamic. And and my youngest daughter, who was a baby, was was constantly sick. It was before we figured out why, okay? <laughs> but she was constantly sick. And I was trying to write a doctorate, and I remember, I remember one morning I said to my husband, I'm just waiting for that day after when like things will feel calm and and I'll just go to the library and be able to sit down and not be worried that I'm gonna be called back. Or it was really that feeling. And I'm sorry for the negative story. The next month my father was diagnosed with cancer. No, I'm telling you for the sake of the midrash though. And I remember thinking about this midrash because I remember that morning I was davening in my apartment and I it was like, I remember thinking, Hashem, please, I just want routine. And then I, that happened, like literally within that month. And I remember, he, my husband doesn't remember, he doesn't remember any stories, but I recently reminded him of the story and I said, I remember that feeling. And I said, there's so many things that have happened since then. But one of the main things that I learned is how to be grateful for the day that I'm in because you never know what's happening in the future. That doesn't mean living with constant anxiety or a fear what'll come tomorrow, but the antidote to that feeling of wanting to just sit and everything be calm because you just never know if and when it'll come is is appreciating the good that is in that day. I, and I think about that midrash all the time in the context of my life or, or with students. And I think it's honestly, for me, it's one of the biggest wisdoms I've taken from, I think probably from any Rashi. <laughs> On, on the unsafe every sheet. But I think that Yaakov is so understandable here. I mean, he's been running for so long. He's tired, you know? And then he gets this story, and then we have the Yosef story. And and in that way, it's it's a lot like David HaMelech, that feeling of, the question is why the pattern started. The question is why why are we here to begin with? Why, why is this demise seeming like it's never ending? And I think that the protagonists themselves have a very big part of the story, both Yaakov and, and David. But that sense of, of wanting things to become is is quite an understandable one. Very much so. Yeah. I can definitely relate. <laughs> definitely, definitely relate. And you don't have to accept this midrash that they were learning Torah and not watching over Dina. It's a and nice that's why perspective, she left. though. But say you accept it. Say you look at it. It's criticism, but it's criticism with empathy. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't say, oh, they were busy drinking or eating. It says they were learning Torah. Finally, they had free time. They went to dedicate it to that thing that they wanted to dedicate themselves to. But the message, I guess, for me, looking at it, is that not to jump at those opportunities and forget our other responsibilities. So we're looking at Yaakov, we're looking at hesitation, we're offering him some empathy on account of him being an immigrant. But now I want to offer again a slightly more critical perspective Mm -hmm. on Yaakov the father. And again, with the greatest respect and understanding, of course. Within the context of the family's immigration, which we already unpacked somewhat, um, there's one event that always stands out to me as a parent reading the story. And this is the way that Jacob ordered his sons and his wives as they were approaching Esav. He literally put them in line by order of importance to him, from least important to most important. He starts with the concubines and their children, 
then Leah and her children, and then Rachel and Yosef. And this is not just, you know, a beauty pageant. It's not like, oh, who's the most beautiful or who's the most important? Let's just rank everybody in the family for fun. It's not that. He's afraid for their lives. Yep. This is under the threat of death. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about these, you know, they're not really children at this point. They're youth. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about them walking and viscerally knowing this is how much my dad is afraid for my life. And this person behind me is the one he's more afraid for. He's the one he will be more inconsolable if something happens to them. I don't think you can march like that in this order and not carry some trauma with you and not carry a pain with you. And when I read the story of Dina, what I see is not the story of a family that comes into disagreement because the father and the sons had different methods in mind. I see the story of a family who was already seething with some level of distrust. And I can't help but wonder, and here I'm following in the footsteps of uh, Rabbi Professor Yonatan Grossman, if the way the brothers, Shimon and Levi in particular, seize control of the situation and force their vision of events on the reality, on the situation, without consulting their father at all, without any moment of consultation or hesitation, has to do with them wondering very seriously whether their father will really bestir himself for a daughter of Mm Leah. And I keep wondering if somewhere in the back of their mind, they're not asking themselves, wouldn't it be different if she was a daughter of Rachel? If she would have been farther back in the least to most important line in dad's mind? And when I read of Jacob's silence here, I also can't help but wonder it with them. I can't help but read that knowledge into his silence and wonder, would he have responded differently if it was Yosef? In fact, I don't need to wonder. Because a few chapters later, when Yosef disappears and all he knows is that his son's ornamental tunic covered in blood is handed to him, he responds with this inconsolable grief that none of his children are able to pull him out of for many, many years. When we look forward and look back and contrast his grief at that moment and his silent response to Dina's rape, I can't help but feel that the text here is really pushing us to side with Shimon and Levi, to be very understanding of their motivation here. So it's interesting. The First of all, it says, they're called, the, the appellation, the title that they're given. It says it many, many times throughout the narrative, and many of the commentators say, first, just objectively, they're her full brothers, and in a family where there are multiple wives, we can only expect that the full brothers will be the ones who who come to her rescue. But I think that your point is unbelievably insightful, right? That they assume that it's we're Leah's side. No, no one's really going to stick up for us. It, of course, makes me wonder, by the way, where the other, the other children of Leah are. Uh, that always, I wonder that. I don't have a good answer to that question. And while the point of our conversation today isn't the question of whose side is a narrator on in this in this story, which is a big question from a Parshanu perspective, there are many aspects to the story, which while many might be horrified by it, I agree that the narrator has tremendous sympathy for Shimon and Levi. One of the famous uh, arguments to that end is that the story ends, they get the last word, right? That the story ends that way. Uh, of course, Yaakov gets the final word when he curses them, possibly for this story, possibly for another. 
But I think that there are many aspects of the story that while we may be distraught or horrified by the killing that they, you know, the killing spree that they go on, I think that we are definitely meant to identify in certain ways from a familial perspective with Shimon and Levi here and how they do come to their sister's aid, perhaps because, as you said, they didn't think anybody else would. Yeah, and I think that the the language Yaakov uses when he rebukes them strengthens um, yeah. those suppositions because he talks to them and he says this remarkable things. He says that the people of the land, because of you, I'm rephrasing, mm-hmm. right? and now I'm actually quoting, will unite against me and attack me and my house. Yeah, he says, Lashon Ani, I think it's like six times in the Pasuk. And you can't help but wonder, shouldn't he say Otanu? What about the girl also? Also, but even, let's say he values daughters less. Mm -hmm. Not exactly an unusual occurrence in the ancient world. Not Mm -hmm. one I like, but let's be real. But at least speak about the collective. But at least speak our house. Mm -hmm. He's talking to his sons here. And he's drawing this line in the sand. He's saying, me and my house. Who does he mean by that? In other places, we hear Yaakov saying, ani ve'ishti. Mm-hmm. And he means Rachel, and he doesn't qualify it. When he talks about Le'ah, he calls her Le'ah. Mm-hmm. Ishti Le'ah sometimes. So you can't help but wonder if also at the end, they're not left with the impression, not only were we right to act, but they're also even hardened in this belief, correctly so, with legitimate reasons, that he doesn't see them as part of his home. And I can't help but wonder, and here I'm, I'm going to say it very carefully because it's, you know, it's conjecture, but I can't help but wonder if this attitude didn't play a part in the sale of Joseph, in the horrifying, horrifying events that we will read in a few chapters. Because when Jacob shows favor to Joseph, when he gives him an ornamental tunic, when he puts him in position of authority, or so it seems, over some of his brothers, the response of the brothers still seems a bit disproportionate. And I'm not talking even just about the sale. I'm talking about how many times the text there in Parashat Vayeshev uses the word hate. Yeah. They hate Yosef so strongly, so passionately. And I get it. You know, it's difficult to see your parents showing preference for another son. But we never hear the same, for example, about Jacob and Asav. There too. Each of them was preferred by a different child, and it was painful, we assume. But we never hear at that stage, not until after the stealing right, of the blessings. We hear after, but not, not before. We never hear that just the preference led to hatred, mm-hmm. which raises a question, why? And I think here we see some of the fertile ground upon which this hatred grew. Because when their own sister was in danger, their father was silent. When they stood up for her, their father rebuked them drawing this line in the sand by saying, me and my home. I can't help but wonder if there's some lingering bitterness there. Definitely, I can't help but wonder if later when they act upon this hatred and sell Joseph, they're so blasé about hurting their father because on some level they divorce themselves from his feelings already here. When they say, our sister, not your daughter, our sister, Fine, you draw the line of what's yours, we draw the line of what's ours. It's a very different frame of mind. It's a frame of mind that encourages almost um, being willing to act in ways that will hurt their father, perhaps not as a primary purpose, but it's not an inhibiting factor. Furthermore, we see here that when it comes to their family relationships, they had an experience where they had to take agency into their own hands. They took the matter into their own hands and solved it, not to their father's satisfaction, but to their own. 
And I wonder if that gave them a taste of power, in a sense, a taste of uh, ability, that when they decide to first kill and then sell their brothers plays a part. They're like, okay, there's a situation in our family. Our father shows favor once again to a son of Rachel, once again showing us where we are in the line of his favor. Okay, we will act upon it. We did it for Dina, and we'll do it for ourselves. I think that another really relevant point to that, to that idea of yours is the behavior of Reuven, which, while I didn't bring it up, also appears in this week's Parsha. I didn't say it in my summary. There are two aspects to Reuven, and here I think is a great support for what you're saying right now, which is that right after we have the very difficult scene in the 29th chapter of Breshit, where Rachel and Leah are basically in competition with each other as they create the children, we see Reuven bringing the Dudaim to his mother Leah, right? And there is this like direct sign of how children are, in, you know, intuitive or understand what's going on in their house, even if it's not said directly to them, right? He sees that his mother is missing love, that she's missing something that she needs, and he goes and brings her those Dudaim. How they f- play into the broader story is another aspect, but he sees directly there. And in this Parsha, in the parak after the one we're learning right now, he also, in his own way, tries to rebalance the family dynamic by essentially taking over Bilha, right? When he goes and sleeps with her, and again, it's very enigmatic psukim, it seems very much like the Torah brings us this tradition, but almost doesn't want to tell us the whole story, that when he goes and takes over Bilha's tent, it's also his way, and I believe that Parshanim said this also, of trying to bring Leah a little bit more, right? A little bit more into the spotlight, okay? Well, well, Rachel is, is, is already gone, right? And now I want to make Leah prominent again. And so there's, there's a number of, of sort of very clear messages throughout the Parsha that, these, that the brothers are very much in tune with that dynamic, and it has great impact on their behavior. And I think that seeing it in this, in this story is, is tremendously insightful. And also sad, right? Because oh, it's, definitely you know, sad. looking at it, it's like, yes. it's not just the history of our people, it's also people. Yeah. And it's very, very sad and very difficult to see them suffering so much pain and so many real divisions. It's not something you can excuse away. It's a true difference in emotional attachment. From the beginning of the story of Rachel and Leah all the way down to the sale of Joseph and onwards, you see people who want things that don't align. And it's very, very painful. But instead of finishing on this somewhat depressing... Uh, Wait, dep- before, before yes. you go there, I just want to add one, one piece, which is that something I often say when I teach is that the Torah never presents polygamy as a, as a positive endeavor. Uh, I think that if we can talk about a lesson that we learn from this story, and I think there's many more other than this one, <laughs> but I think that the idea that f- families with so many internal chapters or internal divisions is not something the Torah ever presents as something positive. It's really complicated. People can't avoid connecting with some humans more in their family than another. Even people, obviously, with just one spouse and multiple children, every parent knows what it feels like to connect with a kid a little bit more than another kid. But I think that one of the, the takeaways of the many that there are to this story is to remember the Torah says, this is a family structure that was accepted and normative in this time, but we're actually aiming for something different. <laughs> and we said in a different podcast, when it presents the initial union between man and wife as being between one man and one wife, it makes this point very clearly in the beginning of Sefer Breshit. So one, yeah. one positive takeaway. Yeah. Don't be polygamous. Okay. <laughs> 
don't know how relevant it is to most people daily right. life, to be honest. Yeah. But I want to finish also on a, add another positive note to the ending of this discussion, which is that we started by saying that there's a revolution here. There's a revolution happening in family relationships in this story. And we talked about the revolution in the relationship between generations. The fact that two generations can stay together even though they disagree. And all of them are active at the same time. At the same time, there's also a revolution here in the relationship between brothers. Every single set of brothers we met so far in Genesis, at least every single set of brothers that had a story and wasn't just mentioned, like uh, Peretz and Zerach, for example, was a story of competition, of exclusion, of choice. This one or that one. This one stays, this one goes or sent away, in the case of Ishmael, for example. For the first time here, we're seeing brothers working together. Mm-hmm. We may adopt those opinions within the array of opinions offered to us by Midrash and Parshanim that are very critical of what they do. But the fact is that they're working together. This is huge. This didn't happen until this point, ever. And as we enter the horror that is the sale of Joseph, in the next Parsha, it gives me hope. It tells me that it is possible to act as brothers, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. But brotherhood as a concept that isn't just about competition and exclusion and exile becomes a possibility here. And this is such a foundational moment. This is such a comforting moment when we watch this family move forward and when we watch them slowly inching their way towards becoming a nation, towards becoming us. Rachel, I want to thank you for this conversation. As always, you've brought uh, tremendous insight and ways of thinking about stories that are incredibly creative. So I really want to thank you for this, and I'm sure it's provided a lot to think about for everybody listening at home. Thank you, Yosefa. It's my privilege. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.